The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Are you interested in taking more of your health care into your own hands? To learn when you can safely treat health problems at home and avoid unnecessary trips to the doctor? Would you prefer to reduce your reliance on over-the-counter and prescription drugs and learn about effective natural alternatives you can keep stocked in your own medicine cabinet? If, if so, this is the ideal time to be listening to KBU Radio. Today's guest is Dr. Tiarona Lodog. Dr. Lodog is the director of the fellowship program for Andrew Weil's Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. She was appointed by President Clinton to the White House Commission on Alternative Medicine and has served on the advisory board for the National Institutes of Health Center for Alternative Medicine. Before attending medical school, Dr. Lodog was a respected herbalist with training in midwifery, and she's here today on Health, Talk, Health Watch to talk about her new book from National Geographic, Healthy at Home, Get Well, and Stay Well Without Prescriptions. Welcome back to Health Watch, Dr. Tirona Lodog. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. So in the introduction to Healthy at Home, you, you start by describing your experience prior to being a doctor of, of owning an herb shop and an herb company and sort of meditating on the power and the limitations that you witnessed with natural medicine. Can, can you share a little bit of that with our listeners today? Well, sure. I mean, I grew up um, really in a in a family that was, you know... We didn't rush to the doctor for things. There was a uh, we weren't we weren't adverse to using the physician when you needed to, but because we were basically healthy kids, my parents were of the mind that you know putting you to bed and letting you rest and sort of symptom management was mostly what you needed, except for things that really were serious. And so, I was long attracted to herbal medicine and natural medicine. Went to massage school, studied midwifery, and. Um, and even martial arts training, I loved martial arts. I was in Taekwondo for many, many years, and it also introduced me to an Eastern philosophy of healing and medicine. And, and so I was, I was strongly attracted to this. And in southern New Mexico, uh, in Las Cruces, I opened up um, an herb shop, and I did massage and, um, and also made herbal remedies and did consulting where people would come in and see me with a variety of complaints, and I would mix up different herbal uh, preparations for them. And and my gosh, I have to tell you, I felt so good about the work I was doing because, you know, kids with eczema, you'd take them off dairy and you'd and you'd give them some natural herbs and some topicals and they would just be like different kids and, and women with PMS and cramps and things like this. There was just so many ways to help them. And people would come in with conditions that were very serious, and they would want to use natural remedies. And I realized quite quickly, actually, over the years. I mean, it seemed it did take years, but but I, it really grew on me that there were there was a real time and place for the heavy hand of conventional medicine, and that I wanted to be able to offer that. So I went to school and went to medical school in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and and then went to medical school and then studied family medicine so that I would be able to offer both. And and as a physician, I saw the strength of conventional medicine and I saw its limitations where, you know, I tell you, you just map every ill to a pill. It's, it's a mess. 
because the answer is a pharmaceutical medication or surgery. Um, and I realized that it was the marriage of these more natural approaches to help to health um, married with this stronger hand of conventional medicine that to me made the most sense. And it's eventually what led me to integrative medicine. And and you talk in, in your latest book, Healthy at Home, about how you feel like we're really losing basic knowledge of how to maintain health and to treat um, common health conditions at home. That you, you, know, for, you give the example of parents who aren't able anymore to distinguish between mild conditions and ones where they should really be going to urgent care. Can, can you talk about why you think we're seeing that loss of knowledge and, and how this book seems to be one part of the remedy for that? I think that um, many of us don't live in our homes with our grandparents anymore um, or even great-grandparents. My children were blessed to have great-grandparents alive, you know, uh, to have my my son when he was 27 years old still had a great-grandparent alive in the world and, um, and was in contact with her on a regular basis. And so when we lived with our parents and our children would get sick, our parents had already gone through this with us when we were children and had witnessed things that, you know, made them concerned or, or suggested something was serious or seeing things that were very common and could be treated at home. For a lot of young parents now, and I would even add a lot of young single parents, it's them and their and their child or children kind of alone. And when your child has the 102 fever and doesn't doesn't feel well at 1 o'clock in the morning, it's a really scary thing. There's nobody there that you can just ask or, or you could just go wake up in the next room and ask to sort of say, you know, what do you think we should do? Well, and One of the things and, that I – I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I think that in um, – I, I see less of this like in the southern part of New Mexico where I lived where you had many um, – uh, Latina mothers living with their with their parents. I mean, there was multi generations in the home, and actually, when a grandmother would say, "I think you need to take them to the doctor," as a physician, when grandma said it, I said, "If your mom thinks you should bring that child in, I really, you know, I will get up at eleven o'clock and I will meet you down at the office." That had a lot of weight for me. Grandmas tend to have actually a lot of wisdom around discerning when children are ill that many times young parents don't have. I was just going to mention that um, you you describe a parent alone without family support, or we could even imagine someone elderly without family support, yeah. and they do have the internet, and which gives them access to infinite information, but really not information that is prioritized. And what I really love about Healthy at Home is that it's not just a list of all the possible things that could be treated for conditions, but the actual things that you have seen through decades of experience to, to be working. Dr. Lodog, one of the, the main areas I think people are concerned about is treating uh, infections, respiratory infections, bladder infections, all sorts of, or even infections of cuts and wounds. Let's start with the uh, benefits of finding alternatives to antibiotics when you can. Obviously, antibiotics are, are super useful and, and also extremely overused. Can, can you talk about some of the downsides of always opting to antibiotics first? Right. I, first of all, I think people have forgotten what blessing it is to be able to mount 
a response to an infection. And the body's response to the infection when we are healthy um, is generally a fever. The fever is designed to rev up the immune system and also by increasing the body's temperature, you decrease the ability of bacteria to replicate. So it serves twofold purpose. It slows down the infection and it also mobilizes your own, uh, your own warriors, if you will, to fight, to fight off the infection. So people are forever going, oh my God, I have a fever. It's a terrible thing. And I'm like, no, it's a good thing. <laughs> the danger is when people can't mount fevers. As you, as you know, you know, 80 year old people seldom ever mount a fever. Uh, they can't mount that big immune response, which is what makes infections very dangerous for them. Antibiotics to me, you know, other than their own human, I'd say that they are the modern warriors of, of our time. Um, people used to die from infections, um, serious infections, um, quite often. And today we have a range of antibiotics that can treat a wide range of serious infections. The problem, however, is that we are seeing increasing uh, numbers of bacteria and other pathogens um, you know, bad invaders that are no longer sensitive to the antibiotic drug. And when we say antibiotic resistance, that we mean that it's resistant to three or more antibiotics that it used to be sensitive to. So, you know, this is a dangerous thing. Um, we now have methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, right, MRSA. Most people have heard of this. used to be more commonly acquired in the hospital. Now it's in the community. So it's escaped the hospital. It's in the community. And more people die now every year in the United States of MRSA infections than they do of AIDS. And we don't talk about this enough. We don't talk about the fact that antibiotics, we don't really have any new ones in the pipeline. There are not any new great antibiotics that pharmaceutical companies are about ready to release. We have what we have, and we have to use it wisely. So instead of instead of turning to an antibiotic for viral infections and ear infections in little children, we need to really learn how do we support the body, how do we use natural approaches for minor infections and save the antibiotics for when they're really needed. People are concerned about healthcare dollars and expenditure in this country. Antibiotic resistance organisms and the misuse of antibiotics in humans, we're not even talking about their use in animals at this point and livestock, but just in animals, costs the American taxpayer more than $20 billion a year. And there will be a time if we do not get this under control with how we are using antibiotics, there will become a time, not if, but when, we have organisms that are no longer susceptible to any of our antibiotics. And that's not to mention the possible link between oh, the overuse of antibiotics and the increase in allergies and autoimmune, autoimmunity. The whole thing with the hygiene hypothesis, which to me, I'm a, I, I am a, uh, I'm a, I'm a pretty strong fan of that hypothesis, actually. I think there's a lot of merit to it. But part of it is that it is your early exposure to lots of germs and worms and all kinds of things that train the immune system to discern what is harmful and really serious and what is not. And when, when you have taken everything now, you fight every infection, people use antibacterial soaps that are, you know, supposed to kill 99.9% .9 of all bacteria 
bacteria. Children are born in hospitals and not at home. We give 24 vaccinations in the first few years of life. And I'm not saying these things are all bad, but what I'm saying is when you look at the totality of, of those interventions, some which have been very good, others which probably are not as necessary, now the body responds to pollens and mold or things in food and sees these as something potentially dangerous, which is why we're seeing an increase in allergies, asthma, and eczema. And we also then weight our immune system in an abnormal way so that we begin to see more autoimmune disease. I would remind you in countries where they're, you know, we would probably consider them not as hygienic as we are. Um, they have more parasitic infections, worms, you know, things like this. They actually have virtually no allergy, and autoimmune diseases are almost unheard of. So it's trying to find the balance there, you know, trying to find a balance between um, prevention, sanitation, and hygiene, and also not overdoing it to the point where the body then responds in a negative way. I used to joke that it was a great day when my kids came home with dirt on their pants. Well, was, that meant they were out playing outside. That, that's a great indicator. So, Dr. Lodog, can you can you talk about some of your favorite immune immune booster, boosters? <laughs> well, I, trouble with I think, that. Um, I mean, there's so many that you can use. I think that, and I think the other thing is that sometimes people forget um, you don't have to always think of them as a medicine that you have to take every day, right? One of the ones I love are things like astragalus. Um, astragalus is an herb um, that's kind of in the same family that people may have heard of, you know, loco weed, astragalus. It's a non-toxic, very safe um, root that is used and, and consumed widely in soups and, and stews over in, in Asia and China particularly. I love astragalus, and during the winter months when I want to sort of give a little extra respiratory immune uh, protection, um, when I'm making soup, I will just throw one of these long slivers of roots. They look kind of like old-fashioned tongue depressors. <laughs> they really do. They're sort of sliced long horizontally, and, and they look like an old tongue depressor, and I'll just throw it in the soup and, and let it cook for 15, 25 minutes uh, and then take it out because you don't want to eat it, it's like eating not it is like eating a tongue depressor and then I'll serve the soup and it, it does not impart any poor flavor to the soup. And sometimes patients will say, Well, I don't really make soup and I said, Well, you can buy Amy's, you know, or you know, an Amy's soup or or if you're not of that, you know, if you buy stuff at the other stores, you can get Progresso or something like this that's nutritious and put it in a saucepan and just throw the astragalus and do this once or twice a week um, during the really bad cold and flu season. Astragalus revs up the immune system, but particularly it increases something called IL-2 in your nasal secretions, which really help rev up that protection from what in Chinese medicine we would say the exterior trying to move into your, right? So from all the germs that people are exposed to that make their way into our nasal passages. Um, so I love astragalus, but I don't think you have to take it every day as a supplement. I think you can actually just add it to your food. The same thing with shiitake mushrooms. Um, these are delicious, and maitake too. These are delicious mushrooms that have a tremendous amount of health benefits, including, you know, shiitake mushrooms have all of the essential amino acids. It contains B12. It even is very rich in vitamin D2, which is a, one of the few plant sources of, of vitamin D that you can get. 
And so just adding these, cooking them and adding them to your dishes several times a week during these cold and flu seasons can do wondrous, you know, uh, benefits for your health. Um, and, and the reason I mention this is because when we talk about food as your medicine, I really mean food as your medicine. Trying to use some of these medicinal food herbs, incorporating more of them like garlic and onions, little garlic. If you like cooking with garlic, you can still get all the health benefits. But the way to do this is to, to, to crush the garlic, put it in a little olive oil, let it sit for 10 minutes. By the time it's set for 10 minutes, the enzymes have already acted now upon these critical um, components in garlic. And now you can actually heat them without destroying them because the problem is if you just cook your garlic right away, you, you destroy the enzymes so you don't get the release of these wonderful compounds. But adding garlic and onions to your food, I mean, we eat a lot of garlic around our house. And, of course, this is beneficial for your respiratory as well as your GI system. So there are just a few ways, you know, kefir, have, you know, if you consume dairy products, get, you know, get Greek yogurt loaded in probiotics or, or drink kefir milk with, you know, rich in probiotics. Add some of these dairy products, if you're not sensitive to them, into your diet on a regular basis. Use food to enhance the immune system. I was really intrigued by your garlic honey vinegar recipe and, and also some of the research that you uh, found around honey and, and co- coughing. Isn't it amazing that honey in children, um, children one to five years of age were studied, and they found that giving two teaspoons of honey at night was as effective as our over-the-counter cough remedies um, and and possibly superior. Um, I I like garlic and honey. I also love thyme and honey um, for children and for big people, too. But honey is very versatile. Remember, for a cough, it could be... You know, you could use a pasteurized honey, but in general, try to buy raw local honey when you can. The reason why is that raw honey, um, when it hasn't been heated, the enzymes haven't been destroyed, which also make it a very potent antibacterial agent that you can also apply topically to the skin. Uh, Honey's been used more than 5,000 years for wounds, and now we are finding in modern research that, indeed, honey not only helps with a cough, but it also is highly effective when placed onto a wound uh, to prevent infection, including MRSA infections, MRSA. There's a study going on right now with soldiers out in the field looking at uh, premedicated honey wraps to be applied in the field as a battle dressing to prevent MRSA, which we're seeing more and more of now in combat. So think about if we're using it in that way, what just raw honey could do for you on minor cuts and scrapes and and skin knees and things like that. Clean it out and then pack it with honey. Keeps it moist and helps it from being infected. And and back to colds and using honey instead of over-the-counter cough suppressants, what are are some of the downsides of using the -the over-the-counter cold medications with children? I know there's been, that's been in the news recently. It has, it has. And it was because um, during the years between 2005 and 2008, uh, there were more than 60,000 poison control um, contacts around children taking um, 
the amount of cold and cough prescriptions, uh, over-the-counter prescriptions, using it appropriately. There were more than 60,000 reports and more than 20 deaths, many, many visits to the emergency room. And this is because many of these medications, uh, these over-the-counter medications, contained multiple drugs, antihistamines, decongestants, et cetera. Some of them caused um, problems with children's hearts. Um, and so the pediatric community asked the FDA to do something about it. That is why today when you go and buy an over-the-counter cough remedy or cold remedy for children, it will say not for use under the age of four and consult your physician in a child four to six years of age because we really wanted to cut this down. Since the FDA mandated those warnings on these over-the-counter products, emergency rooms visits for these types of, of, of problems dropped 50% within the first 18 months. So. Uh, staggeringly effective, but many parents then wonder, well, what do I do with my three-year-old who's got the snotty nose and the cough and is staying up all night? And this is why in the American Journal of Family Medicine, uh, it was the, it, the scenario was a child age one to five who clearly had a viral upper respiratory infection with nasal congestion and cough. The recommendation was honey was to give honey at night before bed, and that was given a grade A or a level A highest endorsement of recommendation you could give for a child between the ages of one and five. I'll just tell you, you can use it in bigger people too, but for these young kids that we don't use over-the-counter medications, then this was given a grade A recommendation by the medical community. Think about that. It, it seems too good to be true, but then you see also the study, <laughs> you see the studies about like uh, saltwater gargles, for instance, something so simple you can do at home that both lower the incidence of colds and shorten their duration. And that seems to have been shown in, in pretty well-designed studies. I love salt water. My grandmother used to use sage and salt gargle. And, uh, you know, when I got older, I just used salt because I thought, you know, well, you don't need the sage, just use the salt. And then there were two studies conducted, um, actually quite large studies. One was a placebo control that used a sage gargle against just a placebo gargle. And it found that within two hours of using it, you had uh, considerable pain relief from your sore throat. The second study was sage and echinacea compared to chlorhexidine and lidocaine. So most people know what lidocaine is. So it's a strong anesthetic. And there was absolutely no difference in pain relief with the sage and echinacea than there was with the chlorhexidine and lidocaine. So for me, I've gone back to the old sage and salt gargle, and I wondered how in the world did my grandmother know this? You know, it's how fascinating. did they figure these things out so long ago that now modern science is putting it to the test and saying, yes, there was wisdom in what your grandmother did. So to give our listeners an example of how Healthy at Home educates people around when they should seek care outside of the home, you mentioned that fever is usually a friend. It's not something we should automatically try to suppress. And also that a lot of these common um, illnesses can be addressed sufficiently and effectively at home with natural remedies. When Let's, let's go back to the issue of a, a parent with a, a sick child, what should they be looking for that would suggest that their infection shouldn't be treated at home? Right. And, and throughout the book, I put when you should like go to the emergency room and when you could just call your doctor or, or your naturopath or your healthcare provider. I was pretty specific to make this more broad because you may have a variety of healthcare practitioners that help you along your journey. 
But I was pretty specific in there to give parents some sense of, gosh, this is not normal. So a child, for instance, who's under the age of two months with any fever um, really should be taken in. Little babies that are under two months of age with any kind of fever need to be evaluated. Elder people, you know, elder people, you know, 70 years and older who are who appear ill, even if they don't have fever, they're not eating well, they're, they're having nausea, loss of appetite, um, they're sleeping excessively, lots of things that are just abnormal for their daily pattern, uh, you should call your health care provider or consider taking them in. As I said, many of them can't mount a fever. A child who um, complains of one leg hurting and is mounting a fever, a child that has a, a, a horrible headache and maybe some neck stiffness. I mean, there's a any child that has a rash with a fever, especially a rash that when you press it, it doesn't blanch, it doesn't sort of fade and then come back. Any of these kinds, a child that's been out of the country and you've just come back and now the child has a fever. Any child with 103 fever uh, for more than three days should be seen. So there's a there's a, um, a whole range of, of these um, indicators that I provide for uh, children as well as for elders. I don't call them the elderly in my book. I think there's something in the language when we refer to our elders versus the elderly. Um, but I also made indications for them of, of when you should also be taking them in um, because they may have an absence of a fever. So, and when um, you mentioned the book, the when, book is designed to really help you discern uh, from minor and more severe infections. When you mentioned earlier that um, our elders don't mount a good a good fever response, and we also know, say, with the flu vaccine, that they don't mount a very good immune response when they get the flu vaccine, exactly. even though they need it the most. It, would that be a, a case where astragalus would be a good uh, thing to take ongoing to, to help boost white blood cell production and other immune function? I definitely think that in elders, um, adding these kinds of, even if it's a supplement, um, having them take them two or three times a week. Elderberry, I also think can, you know, elderberry can be used on a daily basis, just like you could drink, you know, elderberry juice or elderberry wine. Um, but elderberry tablets are, um, don't contain all the sugar and are quite tasty. For many of my older patients, um, I recommend a variety of these things throughout the winter, including probiotics and other things. And before they get their Pneumovax or their flu vaccine, um, one of their vaccinations that they're getting in their elder years, I also put them on ginseng for 7 to 10 days before the vaccination and 7 to 10 days I tell them to keep it on afterwards um, because we've actually seen that ginseng helps your body mount a bigger immune response to the vaccination. Um, so this is important, especially for elders. They wonder maybe, what you know, well, I got the flu. How come my vaccine didn't work? Well, sometimes it could have been the wrong strain, so you may not have gotten a vaccination that covered the strain that you have. But more common in our very elder people, it's because they were not able to mount a good enough antibody response, immune response, to be able to make it effective. So ginseng is something else that we've seen. I use this in my patients' um, you know, that are going to be undergoing chemotherapy that we may want to vaccinate prior to their chemotherapy, making sure that um, they take their ginseng prior to, to kind of rev up their response to that uh, vaccination. That's really fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about insomnia and, and secondarily about stress. Uh, 
how do you start approaching this with patients? It's such a multifactorial issue and one that seems to be uh, one people go to the doctor often for, for medication. Right. Well, I do think sleep is um, an elusive companion for many. Um, and that people, um, people don't, don't, that it takes time to learn how to surrender to sleep. Um, people try to force sleep. So um, inevitably they want an herb. I'm going to, I am going to run like crazy all day long. I'm going to get up early in the morning and I'm going to get the kids all dressed. I'm going to get lunches. I'm going to race everybody the buses and I'm going to go to work and I'm going to work hard all day. And then I'm going to come home. I'm going to help them with their homework. and I'm going to throw the laundry and I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to make the dinner. I'm going to, you know, then I'm going to take a shower. And then at 945, I'm going to take a valerian pill and I'm not asleep at 10 and I don't understand why. And and when you listen to people's story around this and you, and you, you know, a lot, you know this as a doctor, it's, a lot of what we do is listen. Listen to people's stories because eventually when you listen to the story long enough, all of the answers that you need are found within those stories. And so for many people, um, it's, it's that inability to sort of prepare for sleep to begin to consciously prepare to slow down um, and to surrender to, to sleep and to acknowledge that there will be nights when you won't sleep well and that maybe you'll get up at 1 o'clock in the morning and get out of bed and you may read uh, and, and then quietly go back to bed at 2.30 and that those kind of nights you begin to welcome instead of dread. Um, but so, so sleeping is a... Sleeping is an interesting phenomena. I think that we also have this interpretation that people throughout time fell asleep, you know, at 9 o'clock at night and then just slept straight through till 6 and got up and were rested. And, and that's actually not true. All of the research really to date shows that, you know, people and our ancestors, uh, they had several periods of waking and sleeping at night. This was probably because they had to tend fires. They had to feed children. Uh, when people were all living in one room together, uh, you know, couples would make love in the middle of the night after the children had gone to sleep, et cetera. So there was this interrupted sleep um, that was common um, for people. So today we think there's something wrong if we wake up in the middle of the night, when actually that's probably just thousands of years of biology working with us. The trick is how, what do you do when you wake up, and then how do you get yourself back to sleep? So we talk about this in the book, and we talk about you know sleep hygiene and things that you can do to help you prepare for sleep. One of the big things that I would say today um, is the blue light that comes from computer screens and iPads and televisions that people have in their bedroom. Uh, but even worse than a television is that computer screen that's only 10 inches from your retina. <laughs> and, and blue light, like what the sun puts out, right? That's why the sky is blue. Um, but blue light tells your body that it is daytime and it is time to be up and awake and, and moving and doing things. So when you have that blue light coming into your retina, it's literally suppressing melatonin and telling you it's daytime. So if you're doing this till 9.30 or 9.45 and then you're shutting it off and trying to go to sleep, your melatonin has been suppressed now and and now it's got to start to rise so that the body temperature can fall and sleep can ensue so there are pro there are free software programs you can install on your computer one is just called f.lux 
F.LUX, and you can just Google that, and um, and F.LUX you can put on your computer and put in your zip code and where you live, and all it does is essentially change your backlight on your computer from bright blue in the morning to a red in the evening so that if you are on your computer that you don't, you're not suppressing melatonin. Red light, just like fire, people used to sleep around the fire. Fire doesn't suppress melatonin. Red light has no impact on melatonin. So red lights can be used at night. Uh, many people may not remember, but little alarm clocks that used to go on the side of the bed, many of them had blue lights in them. Now almost all of them have red lights um, and red digits because they don't suppress sleep um, when you have them by your bedside. So I, I do like melatonin. I, I like melatonin for people, especially older people and young children who don't have, uh, who, who have a difficult time sleeping. A lot of my kids with ADD are on things like Ritalin or Concerta and they have a horrible time sleeping. Melatonin can be useful for this. But remember, melatonin usually needs to be taken, you know, at least 60 minutes before bed, oftentimes 90 minutes before bed. Um, because it takes time for it to build in your body. I usually recommend what the Europeans have approved, um, which is two milligrams of a sustained-release melatonin for sleep. And and then do you often supplement that with herbs as well, or, is, or do you find that I love sufficient? Herbs. I, I love herbs, and the herb really depends upon the individual. People who don't have a hard time falling asleep but have a hard time waking up, um, that can be a myriad of things. People who wake up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and can't ever go back to sleep. Um, for that, I, I like things, you know, I may use for acute treatment things like hops and passion flower and valerian, that combination. But um, for long term, I will often shift them over to an herb we call ashwagandha. Ashwagandha is an herb um, that is grown and harvested mostly in the Indian subcontinent. And Ashwagandha's botanical name, Wathania somnifarum, actually means to induce sleep, right? And, and it is what we consider an adaptogen. When taken once or twice a day for a, a period of six to eight weeks, many, many people find that they fall asleep easy, they stay asleep, they feel calmer throughout the day, they feel calm but focused. Ashwagandha is a wonderful, wonderful remedy for people who are what I call wired and tired. People who just are just on the go all the time at 7.30 at night, they're exhausted, but they still can't get a good night's sleep. So in those people, I tend to think more of ashwagandha as a more long-term kind of adaptogen um, versus the more rapid kind of hops passion flower, vervain, these type of herbs that can be used um, just to help you drift off to sleep um, on occasion. So in our final minutes, Dr. Lodog, unfortunately, we didn't get to talk about how to build our own medicine cabinets at home or, <laughs> or even how to make our own medicines, which you spend a lot of time really demystifying uh, very simple things that people can do at home to uh, us either buy or to, to create their own medicines that have now been borne out not just through accumulative, cumulative wisdom of generations but through science, uh, scientific studies. But do you have some final thoughts for our listeners today? And, and maybe if people are curious about you, do you have a web presence if people wanted to go find you on the web? Oh, thank you. Uh, first, I just want to thank you for being such a wonderful host, um, and, and I appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, I do have a website. It's drlodog.com, D-R-L-O-W-D-O-G, just like it sounds, D-R-L-O-D-O-G, 
um, and there are some videos and tips and resources there that may be of benefit for people. And finally, I'd just like to say that one of the greatest gifts that we can remember is that um, our bodies have an infinite wisdom, that our bodies are much stronger than we know, and that our bodies were designed for healing, for self-healing, and that much of for many of the minor kinds of problems that afflict us, you know, from headaches to cramps to colds and coughs and things like this, that there are many, many sort of gentle things that you can do to support the body's process without um, stopping the process. A lot of things that we do actually get in the way of the body's ability to heal. So never, never um, underestimate the wisdom um, and the ability of your body to heal. Um, it's one of your greatest gifts, actually. So in terms of stopping the process, you mean, for instance, like blocking stomach acid, for instance, versus exactly. finding out the cause? I, I talk about that a lot. We'll just stop that. Think of all the antis we have in, in conventional medicine, anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, you know, proton pump inhibitors. I mean, there are lots of things that we do that suppress to a large degree a bodily process. The problem is that when you suppress like stomach acid, when you suppress it so completely, the body in its wisdom goes, oh my gosh, we don't make it, we're not making enough acid. So it makes many, many more acid pumps so that when you try to go off that proton pump inhibitor, you have a whole army now of, of acid-making pumps inside of your stomach, which is why people, it's been shown, they have so much difficulty weaning themselves off a proton pump inhibitor. Those drugs increase your risk of fracture. They drive magnesium levels to a very dangerously low level. They impair B12 absorption, especially in people over the age of 50. They contribute to iron deficiency, anemia, especially in elders. Um, they, they, they increase your risk for pneumonia. I mean, I just want you to think all of these things from shutting off stomach acid. And there's so many other ways to deal with it. So stomach acid is good. Stomach acid is your friend. Um, we want to we make sure in the small number of people who really have what we call erosive esophagitis that we, we take care of that. That may actually mean you need a proton pump inhibitor. But many of the people who we prescribe these to, it's not medically indicated nor necessary, and it puts people at unnecessary risk. Well, Dr. Lodog, it was a real pleasure to have you back on Health Watch, and, and I really, uh, really did enjoy Healthy at Home. Thank you so much, and thank you again for having me. We're talking today with Dr. Tirona Lodog, the author of Healthy at Home, Get Well and Stay Well Without Prescriptions, which I believe you can get at the $60 pledge by calling one 5266 Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine.